Well, good morning, Anthem. We are continuing our series, obviously, in the Gospel of John. And one of the themes that we've been looking at, we've said is a central theme to John's Gospel, is how to find life in God through Jesus Christ. How to find life in God through Jesus Christ. That is John's central message throughout the gospel. He wants us to focus on Jesus, to see Jesus, how he's relevant to our lives. And the relevance is that he brings us to God, reconciles him to him, so that we might have relationship with God and find life in him. Now, as we Think about that. All of you, and I know for myself, we, we get a picture in our heads of what that life looks like. We all fill it in, right? We all start painting a picture immediately. And, and I think, especially as modern people, one of the ways that we think about this is we, we begin to, to think about essentially where's everything, where's it all going to go? How, how is everything going to progress? How's it all going to get better? In other words, when we're thinking about Jesus and what it means to have life in God, we immediately start filling in this picture of heaven on earth heaven on earth, right? We begin to think about what would it be like if I could experience God and if God were at work in the world around us, if this is all really true, what, I, we all bring expectations to the table of what that will look like. And we could summarize it in the phrase heaven on earth. We also, another way of putting this is in our modern day, uh, we use this term utopia. Utopia, right? Utopia is like everything now. It's trendy, right? Like my kids, when we watch a cartoon, what do they want to watch? Zoo. Utopia, right? It's like animals, but they're experiencing life in God, right? Not really. But, so Utopia, I remember I was uh, before, between seminary and going, uh, becoming a pastor full-time, started a business in kind of the raw juicing, cleansing world. I know that sounds weird, but uh, it's spiritual. Uh, but started something in there, and I remember had an idea for like a, a juice line that was called Juicetopia, right? Where it was like, Juicetopia, your utopia experience, experience the fullness of life right through juice. So it's this trendy thing, utopia. What's ironic about it is where it came from, the history and the development of that word. See, it came from a, a book that was written in 1551. The term was created. It was coined by a writer named Thomas More. He was a, a Roman Catholic, and and he wrote this book, Utopia. And what's interesting about it is that Utopia, he was using that term and he was comparing it to another term. And that other term is a, it sounds the same in English, which is e utopia. I think we have the comparison of the two words up here. Uh, utopia actually means nowhere. Nowhere. Utopia, with that E on the beginning, means good place the good place. In, in other words, what, what Moore was saying when he wrote this book was he's saying humanity now is at this place where we are seeking heaven on earth. We are seeking this perfection. We have this idea of progress. Remember, this is right at the beginning of, of the Renaissance and the beginning of the Enlightenment is going to come soon after that. And so humanity is kind of taking these giant steps forward and everyone's pushing forward going, but he's asking, where are we going? What are we seeking? Is anyone slowing down to think about that? And what he says is we can either head off into the future and we can search for who knows what, and we will end up with a utopia, which is actually nowhere. Or, he says, we can search for and seek what has actually already been defined for us, which is the good, which is known in God, and the place that God is bringing to earth. And so as we continue in John's gospel, that's a helpful way to think about 
we all are pursuing heaven on earth. We all are pursuing some kind of utopia. But will we end up going nowhere? Is where we're seeking actually going towards what is good? And so John, before this is kind of the, the end of the first chapter, represents kind of a hinge point, a massive transition in his gospel and the narrative. Because in chapter 2 next week, John, we're going to see Jesus performing the first of his public miracles. And he's going to begin essentially manifesting his kingdom. And so he knows as he brings this picture of heaven on earth, he has to address first in what may seem like kind of a strange passage here, a strange episode for John to include. He wants us to slow down and consider, where are you seeking heaven? What are you seeking? And so first, what we're going to look at is the heaven on earth we seek, and then two, why we end up going nowhere, and then three, the secret to finding heaven on earth. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we know sometimes we read passages and they, they seem to have details that we don't know how to make sense of them or why they're included. But Lord, you include every jot and tittle, as Jesus says, every, every dot and line, every word, every letter is inspired by you and is here for a reason. So Lord, help us to understand why you've included this episode and help us to see what our expectations are for heaven on earth and Lord, how that affects our lives and how it allows us to live with joy or not have joy. Lord, we want to have life with you. And so, Lord, help us to see how we can have life in you and the heaven on earth that you promise in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, notice in this passage in verses 43 through 45 how uh, the news about Jesus is starting to spread, right? Like this, it's literally spreading faster than the, the Delta virus, right? Uh, it's just, it's a, like a social contagion, right? Everyone's telling everyone about Jesus. Look at verse 43 through 45. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. And so what we've seen is again, and sorry, the son of Joseph. We've seen again and again that as Jesus encounters people and they encounter Jesus either through, through encountering him or they encounter Jesus through the message of John the Baptist, as we've seen over the last few weeks, as they hear of this good news, they hear of this life, they immediately get excited and they begin overflowing as they experience that life with telling others. Now, why, though? Why is the news about Jesus spreading? Why, why are they telling people about Jesus? Because we could say, well, they, they learned some facts, and they learned some data points, and, and so they just went around, and they, they, they told people that, but that's not what's compelling, actually, about this. There's a, a detail in verse 43. He found, Jesus found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. We, we can easily kind of, because we've heard, if, if, especially if you've grown up around church, we hear this language of follow me, and we, we kind of hear it just as this, we kind of glaze over it. Okay, he said, follow me. But what we miss is in the context what an intimate invitation this was. An intimate invitation, not just to kind of know about Jesus, not to just, just be around Jesus, but to know him, to be with him. And this was important for these men. These, these were Israelites, which means these were, these were Jews. And, and you have to understand, they were coming off of, at this point, 400 years where God had been silent. 
So the Old Testament ends around like 414 BC, and, and God has not spoken to the nation of Israel since then. And so you can imagine, this is, this is, think of the parallel of being like a marriage that's gone cold. Think of a friendship that's gone cold, that's been completely broken off. And it seems like it's, it's gone forever and we'll never have it back. And what Jesus does here is he comes in and as a, in the first century, a rabbi is someone who you have intimately known. This is why they're going to use that language. And you live with them 24-7. And what Jesus is saying is you are distant from me. You have been distant from me. And there's no reason why you would think I would invite you to me. You can know all kinds of facts and figures about God from the Old Testament. But what difference does that make if he wants nothing to do with you? And what Jesus does when he enters the stage is he says, follow me, because he says, I want you not to just know things about me. I want you to know me, to live life with me, to walk intimately with me. Do you know that that is the invitation that the Bible is ultimately giving us from beginning to end? That it's not just that we would know facts about God, that we would know facts about the universe, and we could argue over them. But instead, it's an intimate invitation to know the God of the universe. It's not, to use the marriage analogy, it's not just, hey, your mar marriage is a mess and you're in kind of this cold war with one another. And so you know what you don't want when that happens? When I was younger as a pastor, I used to make this mistake, okay? Because I was kind of, when you're younger, you're kind of a jerk. And so I was like, you know what you need? You need facts about marriage. You need to know more about marriage. So here's what marriage is, blah, 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 so do it. And they're like, that's not helpful, right? <laughs> and so what I learned, actually what we need is we need the marriage, we need the spouse to reconcile, to come and say, I want to, I want to restore this, I want a relationship with you. And what Jesus is doing here and saying, follow me, is he's saying he's restoring that relationship because at the core of the problem was a broken relationship with God. And for the Israelite, for these men, this was the closest thing that they could imagine to heaven on earth. This was everything they desired. You can imagine that their life was filled with this sense of guilt, this sense of alienation, this sense of being distant from the thing that most matters in the universe and what they've been waiting for. And now Jesus invites them to himself. And notice it's not found in a new place. It's not found in like some new promise. It's some new gadget. It's not found in, in anything we tend to associate with heaven on earth, but it's found in a person. That's the main focus here is that it's found in a person. And notice that what happens is they don't even have all the details figured out. Look at verse 46. So they're, you know, people are asking about him, and Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom? Him. We found the one. We found the person. We found him, everything we've been looking for. Everything the entire Old Testament has told us about. We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. <laughs> I don't know why all of a sudden I couldn't say it. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what's interesting, again, is they don't have all the details figured out. They don't know when, the, how the kingdom's going to come about. They don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But they know the one who will lead them there. I want us to get this for a second before we move on, because 
For them, heaven on earth, the, one that, the thing that we seek and the thing that we're all seeking is exactly what they're seeking, which is, yes, we have all the, 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 we have all the surface stuff. Last night, I was looking with my wife at like new smartwatches because mine broke. That's why I keep doing this if you see me this morning. And I'm like, there's no watch there, right? And so I'm looking at it. I'm like, wow, this new you know, gadget, right? We have those things that can bring heaven on earth. We have money that can bring heaven on earth. We have all this surface stuff, right? Our physical appearance and our reputation. But deep down underneath, all those things are exactly what these men are searching for, which is that sense of what do I do with my guilt, what do I do if I have this profound, deep sense that perhaps not, something's not right with me? How do I find joy? How do I find peace? How do I find just happiness, contentment with life? And they say, we don't know exactly what all the surface level stuff is going to look like. But we know the one who addresses what's underneath it all, what really we're looking for deep down is him. That's the heaven on earth we're ultimately seeking. Is him. Because you can have all the toys and the gadgets we've seen. You've read the books. You've read the novels. You've seen the movies where you can have all the toys in the world and your life can be a complete hell. We all know this, right? All the billionaires, right? You've heard the surveys. I mean, they ask them, how much is enough? And they say a little bit more, right? You've heard that. You've read it in Newsweek. Ever, we know there's something in us. It's like, I want, I want heaven, but it always feels like it's just beyond what I can grasp. They say, but in this one, we found it, and they don't have all the answers. And in fact, when Nathaniel is going to come, and we're going to come back to this, this <laughs> can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Philip said to him, come and see, in verse 46. See, I think often it's such a simple, think about how simple that is. And I know if you didn't get a chance last week to hear Brandon's sermon where he goes more into this because they've just said, come and see back in verse 39. Same thing. Come and see. It's a simple invitation. See, so often as believers, I would, again, just let me finish that thought. If you didn't get a chance to hear Brandon's message last week on last week's passage, I would highly encourage you to go and listen to it because he's going to go more in depth into some of this. But what I would say is notice how, because so often I think as, as Christians, we think when we're asked, really? Really you believe in that? Really you find your hope in that? Really you believe that that's truth when somebody asks you about Jesus? And so often I think we live with this anxiety, I know I do, and this pressure, as if what the text says is that we're to walk around saying, come to me. Come to me, I've got the answers. Come to me, I've got all the facts. Come to me, I'm the Bible answer man, right? Come to me, I've got all the philosophical inquiry. I can just, you know, tie myself in the knots and spit out answers for you. Like, we think that we are meant, it says, come to me, but instead it says, come and see. We are not to be able to answer all the details. Instead, what we're supposed to do is point to Jesus and say, I don't have all the answers. I don't know how and when all this will happen. I don't know what to do when it seems like there's contradictions with evil and pain in the world and whatever questions we have and we can't answer all of it because guess what? There's a God beyond what I can even fathom. So there are things that I cannot answer. But here's what I do know. You can know him and you can know truth and you can see everything that you've been looking for deep down in your soul. If you will come and just see him. 
And, and so I, I, what I, just quickly before moving on, want to take the weight off is I want to take the weight off of you of feeling like right now in a time when more and more this is becoming a gap between kind of like if you're a person of faith and you're a person not of faith, and that gap is widening in our culture where you feel like I've got to have all the answers, but how can I have all the answers when there are all these complex questions and all these things? Here's the thing. You don't have to have all the answers. In fact, I love somebody in our church, I won't say their name, and uh, they, they decided that they wanted to reach out to a, a bunch of uh, students on campus who they have a relationship with. And, uh, and so what they did was they just got them together and like 16 or so were showing up. And they are from believers to not believers and they are like, they have all these answers. And he called me and, and I was like, so how are you feeling about it? And he said, you know, I don't know, but what I told them is I don't even know much about the Bible, but I believe the Bible and I'm reading the Bible and trying to understand the Bible. And I tell them when I start, I, I, I don't have all the answers, but this book does. And so he starts with just this simple, hey, guys, let's get together. Because here's the thing. Surveys show, we did this a few months ago. Surveys show that no one wants to talk about politics. No one wants to talk about whether we're liberal or progressive or conservative. No one wants to talk about uh, uh, all those kinds of things. But what they will talk about are two things related to faith. And that is Jesus, because everyone's intrigued by the guy. We'll see in a moment whether <laughs> some of the stuff he says. But everyone's intrigued by Jesus. They'll read about it. They want to learn about Jesus. And then they'll also, they're intrigued by the Bible. And they're starting from a whole spectrum of places when they come to it. But here's the thing. They will get together, open up the Bible, and let and encounter Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is your job is to say, come and see. And so take the weight off. Feel like let the lion out of the cage. Let the word of God do what the word of God does, what we cannot do. Let Jesus do what Jesus does, which is to say, come and see. Grab neighbors, grab classmates, and get together and say, I don't know, let's open up the, the gospel of Mark. I have a reading plan if you want it. We can talk afterwards. And you just open it up and ask questions like, what's this say about God? What's this say about about us and humanity? What do, what do you think the implications are? And just start from there and begin working through life and begin to understand what they're really looking for. And listen. So where are you living life as if what we're called to is to say, come to me? And where is God calling you to invite others to say, come and see? The one who is sufficient, the one who can answer all your questions. We have things coming up culturally like the Super Bowls next Sunday night. Throw a party, invite over your neighbors, build bridges, begin to listen and understand what are the things deep down that they're really after because believe me, everyone is after heaven on earth and that is your common ground where you can begin. Paul says in Acts 17, God has ordained your coming and goings. He's ordained your dwelling places. He's ordained whatever is going on in your life, who your cubicle mates, your classmates, your neighbors. He's ordained them so that when you come together, they are reaching, he says, blindly trying to find life and our job as Christians is not just to look at them and go, oh, look at, look at him in his midlife crisis. Oh, look at him and scoff at them for their political views or whatnot. That is not what we're called to do. We're called to look at them and say what, and ask the question, where are they reaching in their blindness, in their darkness, trying to take hold of life in anything they can find because it gives them a little taste of heaven and then to be people who say, I've found what you're looking for. 
Yes, a hookup will give you a momentary sense of pleasure, but I will give you the one who will give you pleasure forevermore at the Father's right hand, and it doesn't run out the next morning. Paul says, you are placed where you are placed. God has ordained where you're at for divine appointments with individuals so you might say, come and see. He is the one who brings heaven on earth. He is the one we ultimately are desiring. Before we can look at, unpack that more, you have to ask the question, why do we end up going nowhere? Like that idea of utopia, nowhere. Why do, why do we end up often with our lives veering off and not finding heaven on earth in Christ? John contrasted the disciples with Nathaniel. What's interesting is Nathaniel is not going to say when they say, hey, we found this Jesus. We found the one that every, the Old Testament's pointing towards, the awaited Messiah. He doesn't go, that's a bunch of nonsense, right? Instead, he's looking for heaven just like the next guy. He's, he's looking. He's anticipating. He's, if anything, Nathaniel seems to have, I, I feel like Nathaniel's like the guy in the shed, like out in the middle of nowhere, like waiting for the last days, like cooped up, just like, I'll believe it when I see it, but he's coming, right? And he comes out, like, he, he just, he's waiting for it, but he's just kind of sitting still somewhere. Maybe that's a, just my mind. But he, here's the thing. But what John's going to draw is that Nathaniel has hidden assumptions that keep him from finding heaven. He has hidden assumptions that keep him from finding heaven. Look at verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. So why does he say that? Why does he say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was considered backwater. It was like a small, small rural village, kind of simpletons and uh, nothing glitzy and glamorous ever comes out of Nazareth. And you may kind of like be like, well, that's prejudice. Look at this guy. But I think, honestly, like imagine if I came to you and I was like, hey, everything we have ever dreamed of, heaven on earth is coming. We found the one. And you're like, who is he? And we're like, it's la 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 la. And he's from Gary, Indiana, right? <laughs> and, and you're like, Gary, Indiana? Gary, again, I always use Gary, Indiana. I'm sorry if any, no one's ever said they're from there, so I feel like I can keep using it. Uh, but you're like, Gary, Indiana, what, what good has ever come from Gary, Indiana, right? You don't expect, you're like, the Jackson 5. That's, sorry, I immediately thought of, actually, I hadn't thought, the Jackson 5. Anyways, maybe that proves my point. But, <laughs> but, but note that there, there's this hidden assumption that he has here. He's not necessarily anti-Nazareth. But what he's saying is nothing good can ever come out of there. He's saying that something, I don't expect anything to come from there. So, so imagine he expects it to come from somewhere else. Imagine, now imagine if Nathaniel or if Philip had come to him and he said, hey, we found Jesus of Rome. Oh, tell me more. We found Jesus, the TikTok influencer. <laughs> oh, tell me more. We found Jesus of the house of Caesar. Wow, what? Tell me more. See, what's happening is he expects, it's not so much just he's anti-natural. What's happening is he expects that heaven is going to come, the glory of God is going to come from something here on earth. That's his hidden assumption. 
I, I know when I read it and I started realizing that, I was like, I felt this kind of like scoffing in me. Like, wow, I don't do that, right? I would never think that the glory of heaven, that heaven on earth can be found through the things of this world. It made me think of um, when uh, my wife and I were dating. My wife went to UCLA, so we were around L.A. a lot, and specifically Westwood, and that's where a lot of the movie premieres are. And so we used to, you know, as poor college students go down there, and um, one time they let us into a movie premiere. And it was Seven Pounds. It was a Will Smith movie around like 2007 or so. And uh, so we went to the premiere, and it was crazy. I, I wish I could take 10 minutes to unpack the whole story. It's fun. But we got led in, like, down the red carpet right behind Will Smith, okay? So security were, like, rocking behind him. I'm like, that's, that's Will Smith, right? And there's, like, the line, like, people, like, reaching out, like, reaching out, right, touching him. And I just wanted to go up behind them and be like, I can touch him all I want, Right? But, like, we go into the theater, and I run immediately into Woody Harrelson. They're like, just, just do whatever you want in here. And I was like, bye, security. Cool. Let's hang out with all the celebs, right? So I end up then actually standing by the door. Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, he comes up, does a little thing with me when he goes in, because they assume I'm part of Hollywood, right? Like, I'm just some producer who's there. And so I do, like, the whole thing with Will Smith. I'm like, we're friends, right? <laughs> and then... And then after, and then so after the movie, then I go down and I'm like, Lauren, let's just stand and watch, like who's coming out. So I'm standing against the back wall where all this popcorn is, and this guy, think Ninja Turtles with like their trench coats, humongous fedora, and 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 he's like, we're like keep bumping into each other while we're like standing there because it's so crowded. And I realize after a few times, and I, I finally, I, I like really like get jostled and I hit him pretty hard. And then he's like a brick wall. And so he goes, I was like, hey, sorry, man. And he turns to me and he goes. It's okay. It was Mike Tyson, okay? And Mike Tyson had just gotten the face tattoo. I hadn't seen it, so that terrified me in the moment. But he was like, it's okay. I was like, oh. I was like, we're standing. I was like, we're standing next to Mike Tyson. Lauren's there. She's like, what? And so the whole night, anyways, I could go on and on about all the, all the people. I got Shaka Khan's hair in my mouth. It was amazing, okay? So uh, long night. That, I need to, she was talking to him, and it got, anyways. So, when, uh, it was amazing, it was crazy, but here's the, here's the reason why I tell that story. Because it's like the glitz and glamour of Hollywood, right? Like, all these people I've watched in movies, like, I'm like, Will Smith, like, oh, we could fly around and kill aliens together, right? Like, you immediately go into this idea of, like, the glitz and glamour of this place. This is where life is happening. I remember I was literally kind of running in my mind, like, what if Mike and I, like, because I call him Mike now. And we started, like, having conversations, and then we became best buddies, right? And then we, like, flew around his private jet, right? Like, I'm, like, laying out on, like, his zebra furs and his weird mansions, and, like, we become besties forever. And then it's like, I would start living this life that's like this high life of Hollywood and power and glitz and glamour, and then it would be heaven on earth. See, I tell you that story because I, I, I realized, like, there's something here that was like, oh, now I got to go back to my other, my normal life, and all of a sudden I don't have access to that heavenly reality. We, we live, whether it's celebrity or whether it's something like a career or a lover that we can attach ourselves to, we believe there's something that if we would just attach ourselves to it, if we would find it, then we would find heaven on earth. And, and so what happens is, one, it can breed this resentment for the people who are in our lives and we are attached to. 
We can start to look, if we start to live that way, going, man, heaven's in this world, it's out there. And then what happens is when we have that, that mindset is we start to look at our spouse and we go, you're just this thing that's chaining me to Nazareth. This group or these people, their ideology, it just chains us to Nazareth. And you see, that's where the prejudice begins because we have these heavenly ideals that actually don't have any place in an earthly reality, but we slap them down on people, categorize them, and then we can reject them because, or do whatever we want with them because we're on our way to utopia. And see, Jesus also, I think, draws out, and here's... Sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent I hadn't written down ahead of time, so I lost my place for a second. But we can easily find there's some person, some cause, some job, career, and if we attach ourselves to it, we will ascend to heaven on earth. It will bring heaven down to earth. Nathaniel is a picture of looking for it in all the wrong places. And you might say, well, what, what really is the harm in that? And I think actually, so there's the resentment thing that doesn't come out as much here other than the clear kind of like, what good comes out of Nazareth? You can, you can feel it kind of on his voice. So there's prejudice there. And where does that come from? And I think it comes from us having these idealistic, heavenly, ill-defined, but yet some standard that's not even of this world for other people. And we expect, and they just become a speed bump to get there. So I'll just run you over or reject you altogether. You're subhuman because I'm on the human level of utopia. The 20th century proves that out in all of the demands for utopia throughout totalitarian dictatorships. But the other thing here is what Jesus is, <laughs> I think Jesus reveals what really is the problem here. Because what comes next is in this interesting, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Nathanael's like, Yeah, that's me, right? I'm the one with no deceit. And then Jesus said to him, and what's interesting, and I think that there's no deceit is he means I, he's just being honest. Remember, Jesus is dealing with religious teachers who he'll go up to him, and he's like, hey, is, they'll say, you're a heretic, right? And then Jesus is like, well, is it something I said? Was it my works? Was it, what, 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 did, I, what did I do? And they all are like, oh, and they like come together, and they huddle together, like, oh, and they come out, and they're like, <clears throat> uh, we don't know, right? but you're a witch, right? Like, they're, they're very pretentious, right? And so Jesus, it's like, hey, elite Nathaniel's just wearing on his sleeve. It's almost like Jesus is saying, well, I can work with this, right? <laughs> and so he's going, I can, he's honest, I can work with him. He's at least seeking the kingdom of God. He's not just creating his own. And so I can work with him. He's aware of it. And so when he comes to him, he says, you're honest, there's no pretense. But then he says in verse 48, after uh, he said before, uh, how do you know me? Jesus said, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. So Jesus like gives this kind of prophetic moment, like this spiritual insight. And Nathaniel's like, whoa. And so he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So it's almost like Nathaniel is like this, this naive waiting for anything to give him this picture of heaven, this glitz and glamour, just anything to give him a taste of it. And as soon as someone does, he's immediately like, oh, you're it, you're heaven on earth, and just grabs a hold of him. 
And Jesus says, do you realize what happens when you live looking for heaven on earth on anything in this world? For him, it was just some like supernatural little reality, some little miracle. And Jesus is saying, I am about ready to do miracles. I'm about ready to do signs throughout this gospel. And I do not want you to cling to those and say, this is heaven on earth. But I want you to cling to me. And so he's drawing that out and on what he's saying and what he's saying to us because then he goes on and says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Really? That, that's what hooked you? That was enough? You will see greater things than these. You're going to see greater things, which is Jesus used when he says greater things. He's pointing to his work on the cross and the way he's going to save them. And he's saying, you're going to see greater things. This is just a little bit of it, a little taste of heaven. And so here's where this applies for us today. What Jesus is saying is the problem with just grabbing a hold of things in this world, the glitz and glamour of this world, and trying to find a taste of heaven in it and trying to create heaven on earth through it is that it will create in you. You will be so desperate, so desperate for heaven, for utopia, that you will be so easy to control and manipulate. All it takes is a boy or a girl to promise you heaven. All it takes is someone with a little bit of the next dangling a promotion over you. All it takes is someone giving you a cause to finally give you purpose. And then immediately you'll grab hold of it. And what Jesus is saying, when you grab hold of that, it keeps you from seeing ultimately me. And it enslaves you. And it doesn't take you to a good place. It actually takes you nowhere. Jesus, I think, is building on what in the Old Testament, this is a theme throughout the Bible. It's been a theme with Israel. It's a theme with us goes back even before Israel to the Tower of Babel. And some of you may be aware of that story where they begin, they say, we want to reach heaven on earth. And so they do it through groundbreaking human achievement, right? It's not the celebrity thing and whatnot, but they, they think if we can just groundbreaking human achievement, if we can just do that, then we will ascend to heaven, we will build to the heavens. What's interesting is there's a detail in that text that is kind of like a time bomb waiting to go off when you get to Exodus, because it says in there, it has this little detail that uh, bitumen and mortar is what it's described as them building with. It's an interesting detail because that is going to be exactly the same phrase in the Hebrew that's used when they're enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. And he's going to enslave them to use bricks of bitumen and mortar and to build for him as they're enslaved to him. In other words, what Genesis is saying is when we try to build heaven on earth, whatever that cause, whatever that thing is outside of God, is it will enslave us and control us and lead us nowhere. What's the point of including this exchange with Nathaniel? Why is this in the gospel? Because Jesus, John, is saying, be careful where you seek heaven on earth. It matters. And it matters because your soul is made to seek it. All of us seek it. We're designed for it. It's not a bug. It's a feature. And so Jesus says, lastly, listen to where desire, that desire must be directed. Lastly, the secret to finding heaven on earth. Jesus says something interesting. He alludes to another well-known Old Testament 
passage or episode. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you. So he says, you will see greater things than this. Truly, truly, listen, Nathaniel. Listen, Anthony. I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This Jesus here is referring to an episode in Genesis 28. It's called Jacob's Ladder. And in it, Jacob has a dream, and it says, He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The ladder was a picture God gave Jacob in a dream. Jacob, if you think about it, would have been very close in the Old Testament to what Nathaniel was like. He was, Jacob literally means cheater. It means someone who wrestles, he's described as wrestling with God. And Jacob's going to give birth to Israel, which is the people of God, which gives birth to the church, which is us. And it's saying there is something in us that stands throughout all time, which is we're wrestling with this reality, wanting to find heaven on earth. And we will be tempted to cut corners and to cheat and just grab on to whatever we can to get there. And so God gives him a vision. He says, there's going to be a ladder, Jacob, because you or else what can happen? I heard somebody in the church said this this week, and it was so great. It applies so well. He said, you can, somebody told me in, that was in their same career field, I, I climbed the ladder, and when I got up to the top, I realized it was against the wrong wall. And God's saying, don't climb the ladder, don't build the towers, don't attach yourself to things that seem like they'll get you to heaven. But at the end of the day, when you get to the top, you realize it went nowhere. And then Jesus, that's why he takes that exact phrasing from Jacob's ladder, and he inserts himself there. He says, the ladder, that's me. The way to get to heaven, that's me. What you're actually looking for, that's me. It's as if he's saying, maybe, Jacob, stop wrestling. Nathaniel, stop wrestling. Anthem, you, me, we, us, stop wrestling. Stop grabbing at whatever you can. You're, you're frustrated. You're anxious. Your life is filled with turmoil. You're discontented because you're trying to find heaven on earth in the wrong place. I am what you're looking for, and I am here, and you don't have to build your way to heaven. I have come down He's saying you don't have to reach heaven through groundbreaking achievement. You don't have to put yourself together so you have some kind of spiritual temperament that allows you to ascend to God. But instead, heaven came down in Jesus Christ. And heaven came down in Jesus. And heaven will come down again in Jesus forevermore. And that is where our hope is found. You can't ascend to heaven through groundbreaking historical achievements. But Jesus says, I've broken into history and brought heaven down to earth. He says, I'm the good one. I'm, I'll bring the good place. If you climb any other ladder, you'll just end up at the top and find you're against the wrong wall and nowhere. And so this is where I want to drop us off this morning for time. We could go to Revelation. Pardon me, wants to go there. And just ruminate, I would encourage you to read Revelation 21 and 22. When we think about heaven on earth, to think about, because I, I remember taking that and thinking, like, I don't know if you've ever, like, watched then. I watched, like, two years ago. I remember I saw this thing that was, like, Mike Tyson's 1990s mansions, and they're, like, abandoned. 
Has anyone ever seen those things, the like clickbait stuff? I'm a sucker for that. And so I, I, I go into it, and, and it's like these mansions where it's like all the stuff from the 90s that was like amazing then, and now you're like, why is there a gold-plated like toilet and telephone and like huge stereo CD systems that were like thousands of dollars then, but now are just abandoned? And, and I realize like the things that we tend to try to create heaven on earth with in this world, they, they fade so quickly, and they perish so quickly. And what Jesus invites us to is he says, I will give you something that will never perish. It will never fade and you will be sustained. And so are you investing your life in me? And in me, you will find the heaven you seek. So a few diagnostic questions that you can talk about in your community groups. You can talk about with your spouse or over lunch. Are are you climbing the wrong ladder? Where's the ladder you're climbing leading to? So maybe which ladder? What's the ladder you're climbing in life? Really? What's the ladder that you're climbing? And, and maybe you would go, I don't know how to tell what ladder it is. Well, ask yourself, what if you lost it would feel like life wasn't worth living? That's usually something in there. Because if the ladder got kicked out and you're climbing it, and so what's the ladder? And then where is it leading? And are you looking for utopia, e-utopia, or utopia? Nowhere or the good place? I was recently talking to a Christian businesswoman And I asked her, because she had some mentors, and I was asking her about what was the most helpful thing a mentor ever shared with you? It was an older Christian man, and she said, actually, it was very simple. He shared from Psalm 37.5, or he did, just commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. But commit your way to the Lord. He said, ponder, what does it look like to commit your career, your life, your marriage, your parenting, your education, is it committed to the Lord? Are you seeking him? Is your company committed to the Lord? And ponder that. And ponder where perhaps the ladder is going a little bit this way, but Lord, what does it look like to commit to you? Because oftentimes what we do is we buy into all these ways that we can find heaven on earth through these things, but instead, commit your way to me. Seek me. So perhaps that will be something helpful to ponder. But John invites us to slow down and consider, where are you seeking heaven on earth? And he says, seek Jesus, and you'll discover heaven has come down. Seek him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we thank you for, Lord, we we desire heaven on earth, whatever we call it, Lord, heaven on earth, utopia. And Lord, we, we desire Lord, we said many times, we, we desire for it to look in, uh, in Columbia as it is in heaven. Lord, we, we desire to see you at work in our midst, in our lives, individually, in this church, in this city, bringing renewal. Lord, we desire heaven. But Lord, you are the greatest thing about heaven. Lord, one day we will be fully in your presence and we'll... Be free, Lord, and all the things that now we, we think are heaven, the things that we want to sell our souls for to, and, and lose our soul for, Lord, are things that we'll have a hundred, a million times full as far as the joy and the happiness and the peace that they bring us. But, Lord, it's so hard to see. Lord, would you help us all? Whatever it is, Lord, that's keeping us from living with that contentment and that joy, Lord, of experiencing just heaven, 
throughout our day of seeing you and your sufficiency. Lord Spirit, would you reveal that? Would you bring us Christ? Help us to find that joy. Lord, so we wouldn't be so easily controlled, but Lord, we would be free people who live with passion and delight in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.